Well, for the past several weeks, we've been studying through the book of Titus, taking a break from our study in the Gospel of John. And we've been studying God's instructions to different categories of people in the church. And every single one of us can find ourselves in one of these categories. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and Christian leaders. Paul instructs Titus to instruct these men and women on how they are to conduct themselves in the household of, of God and also in the church. And I remind you that we have structured our study around four words. Structured our study around four words. All the words begin with the letter C. And the first word, some of, the, of a review, is the word contrast. The first word is contrast. The chapter, Titus chapter 2, begins with Paul contrasting Titus with the false teachers. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul says to Titus, but as for you, that first word but, it's a contrasting conjunction. He's contrasting Titus with the false teachers that he had just talked about in chapter 1 verse 16. He describes them in verse 16 by saying, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul uses strong adjectives to describe these false teachers. They are, in Paul's words, detestable, abominable, objects of disgust. They are disobedient. And we did a word study a few weeks ago, meaning they are unpersuadable. They will not even listen to truth. They will not even entertain the possibility that the Word of God is true. They are so steeped in their, their deception that they won't even listen. Therefore, they are unfit for any good work. The Greek word is adokimos. They are worthless. They are rejected. They are cast aside because they cannot be used by God to build up His church. Titus has just, is just, Paul is just done describing these false teachers. And then he turns to Titus and he says, But you, Titus, you are to be different. And here is the second word. That begins with the letter C, the word command. Paul commands Titus. And what's the command? But as for you, verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now again, very important. Paul is not teaching Titus, telling him to teach sound doctrine. He had done that already in chapter 1, verse 9. The importance of the sound doctrine. What Paul is telling Titus to teach is to teach the life that fits sound doctrine. The Greek word prep was used for fit. There was only one kind of life that fits the Word of God. Only one kind of life that is consistent with sound doctrine, wholesome doctrine, healthy doctrine, right teaching. And what is that? It is right life. Paul is saying, Titus, you must teach more than just the Word of God. You must teach the people how they are to apply the Word of God the various arenas of life. And the word that he uses there is not the, te- the word teach. It's not didaskaleo, which is teach. It's not caruso, which is preach. It's the word leo. Really connoting that Titus is to talk about this all the time. 24-7. In the pulpit, outside the pulpit. 
during meals, during church activities, during fellowship, he used to constantly exhort the church, the older men, the younger men, older women, younger women, on the importance, the imperative on living right lives. And then Paul moves on to the third word, which is conclusion. Conclusion. The purposes of, the purpose of these commands. Paul says that obedience to the word of God is, is essential, it's imperative, it's crucial that believers live right lives. It is not an option. It is a total package, the Christian life and doctrine. Because there are serious consequences to disobedience. When Christians disobey, there are grave consequences, not just to themselves, but to the world. It influences how people view the Word of God. This is stated three times in this chapter. Go down to verse 5. Paul says, all of this. For the purpose that the word of God may not be reviled. This is the first compelling reason that believers are to obey the word of God. It's the honor of God's word. So that the word of God may not be reviled. The Greek word is blasphemy. Spoken against. Dishonored. Maligned. Disdained. Rejected. Treated as a lie. In other words, our lives have a direct bearing on how non-Christians view the Word of God. If our lives are right, if our lives are obedient to Scripture, non-believers would have to say, you know what, the Word of God is true. The Word of God is powerful. The Word of God is living and active because His life is changed. But if our lives are disobedient, they'll consider Christianity, they'll consider the Word of God as a joke. It cannot be true when an older Christian man, woman, younger Christian man, woman, when they are not what they ought to be, it gives reason for the world to blaspheme the Word of God. Right? Don't we see this? For the world, for non-Christians, the issue is not, is the Bible true? The issue is, are Christians hypocrites? They have their radars on. And they're scoping us out. They want to see our Christians true to their faith and they will judge the validity of the Bible by our behavior. By our behavior. Right life is supremely important because if we don't live holy lives, Paul is saying, the world will, will disregard and dishonor and blaspheme God's word. The second purpose so that, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. When they scrutinize our lives, our lives are so above reproach. There is no even hint of immorality, Ephesians 5 says, that they'll be ashamed at the purity, the reverence, the righteousness of our lives. And they would acknowledge God because of our lives. And the final purpose is in verse 10. In order that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. I mean, that's powerful. I love this. It means that by our lives, we're preaching God all the time. 
We're preaching a high view of God just by, the, just by how we live our lives. We talked about older men last week. When older men live sober, soberly, they live with dignity, with integrity and honor. They're sound in faith, sound in love, and they're steadfast through trials of life. The world sees God. The world sees the living God through their lives. And what's the foremost thing they see? They see that God is Savior. That God has saved us from what? Saved us from sin. That our verbal proclamation of the gospel is affirmed by the integrity of our lives, by living right lives. Paul says that is what is at stake. For a Christian professing to follow Christ, right life is not an option. It's a must. It's an imperative. And Paul is commanding Titus to teach this to the five categories of people in the church. Well, last week, we dealt with the character, the final word. Character of older men. And that was really a rebuking study for me. I'm sure for all the men here. I talked to several of you. We're all challenged, were we not, when we looked at this picture of a godly man. This older man who stood through the tests of time, the tests of life, and he's found, his faith is found to be pure as gold. Sober refined seven times, there are no impurities. Here is a man who is sober minded. He's not given to extremes of life. He's a man of dignity, meaning he garners respect from his wife, from his children, from his church, from his community. He garners their honor because of his life. He's a self-controlled man, Pointing to his mind. His mind is disciplined. Meaning he doesn't doesn't talk about Christianity. He's applying it to life. He's sound in faith. He's sound in love. He's sound in steadfastness. That's the picture that, that Paul drew for us of older men, how they are to be in the church. That, that age without godliness has no benefit to the church. That we are to add to our age these marks of maturity, these marks of godliness. Well, today we are going to look at Paul's instructions concerning older women in the church. Older women in the church. The title of our study is The God-Pleasing Life and Ministries of Older Women. The God-Pleasing Life and Ministries of older women. Now, the text is written to women, so I'm going to speak to women today. And I'm going to speak to women because we love our women. God loves you guys. God loves you so much that He has specific instructions for you. And as elders, because we love you so much, we're going to take this time out to speak just to you. And if the men love the women of Cornerstone, you will listen as well. Amen? <laughs> okay. <laughs> One more time. If the men of Cornerstone love the women of Cornerstone, they will listen with intensity. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's right. You know, First Timothy 5 says, treat older women as mothers. Right? So we're, we're talking about our moms here, our spiritual moms. Every older woman in our church, God is commanding our moms. 
So man, if anything, our heart should be leaning forward to absorb these truths so that we might encourage our mothers to godliness, so that we might pray for them, encourage them, exhort them in the way that God wants them to go because it pleases our Father. We'll go to verse 3 and it says, Older women, Paul is talking about age, not maturity. He is not saying spiritual women, mature women must be. No, he's saying older women must be. And every single woman here is older than someone else. So no one can cop out and say, you know what? I'm too young for this. This is not for me. I don't need to listen because I'm not an old woman. No, no one is old here. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying older Paul saying all older women must possess these characteristics of godliness and spiritual maturity. All older women. Why? Because simply by the fact that they are older, they're examples to the younger women. Have you guys thought about that? That you are an example? The issue is, are you a good example or a bad example? That's the only issue. You're, you're, you're preaching a message by your life, by your priorities, by your decisions, by your attitudes. You are proclaiming a message loud and clear. The only issue is, is it a message that is consistent with the Bible or a message that is inconsistent with the Bible? That is why Paul said it's, it's, it's essential, it's imperative that older women have these characteristics because they influence other women. Younger women are looking to you. Right? It's amazing to see Elizabeth just imitate Serene. I mean, it is just amazing how I mean, all parents can, can affirm this. How a child would mimic their mom. I mean, sounds, fa- facial expressions, mannerisms. It's uncanny. Well, the same thing is happening in the church. And all the younger women are looking to older women as examples. And that is why it is so crucial that older women exemplify these godly attributes. So Paul gives here three characteristics of godly older women. The first characteristic deals with behavior. Second deals with speech. Third, with attitude. Pointing to the whole, the complete faculties, the, the totality of one's life. Behavior, speech, and attitude. The first God-pleasing characteristic, I believe, is the essential trait. This is the overarching, foundational trait that an older woman must have. Verse 3, they must be reverent in their behavior. They must be reverent in their behavior. They must be holy, godly, worshipful in their behavior. The Greek word, the idea is priest-like. An extra, it's the only time it occurs in all the New Testament, this word. But outside the Bible, it is used to describe priests, their conduct. So women are to be priest-like. Sacred in their conduct. They are to behave in a manner fitting in holiness. If you have a King James Version, it expresses it beautifully. It says in King James Version, behavior as becometh holiness. Behavior as becometh holiness. 
Now, practically, what does that mean? In day-to-day living, what does reverent in behavior look like in women? Now, this is where I have to kind of solicit help from a lot of other authors. Because um, I've been married to my wife for six years now. Two of the most closest people in my whole life are women, Serena and Elizabeth. In the past month, I've read Being a Titus to Woman by Martha Peace, <laughs> Christian Motherhood by Nancy Wilson, Women Helping Women by two women authors, Women and the Word by Susan Foe, various articles about women, to women, with women, and still, I do not understand women. <laughs> I cannot, for the life of me, figure women out. I mean, that is why... This passage, this one and the next one, it's such a challenge for me because I know what the Bible says. But for me to figure out how it applies to women, it doesn't make sense. Right? Does that make sense to you guys? I think, guys, you guys understand what I'm saying. Like Jerry's nodding his head. He says, yes. Right? I know what the Bible commands, but I can't understand why this is an issue for women. Right? I think, but as I teach it, all women will understand. Guys will, won't understand, but women will. So with that, turn with me to 1 Timothy 2.9. 1 Timothy 2.9. Paul there talks about women's clothing, jewelry, and cosmetics. And so for guys, man, what's the big deal? Why is Paul talking about godliness and clothing in one breath? That would never be an issue for guys. But I just have to trust the Bible, trust the Holy Spirit that for women that is a major issue. And I talked to my wife about that. Is that a major issue? And she agreed. And so she agrees, I agree, that Paul is right, that the Bible is true. First Timothy 2.9, Likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper, there's that word again, for women who profess what? Godliness. There it is again, with good works. Paul here contrasts life of good works, which is proper for for a woman who professes to be godly, He contrasts that with a woman who dresses immodestly, who dresses extravagantly. And Paul says these two are mutually exclusive. See, for guys, we have no idea. But for women, that's what Paul says. These two things are mutually exclusive. A woman will either fill her life with good works. She will be obsessed and immerse herself with serving God and serving others, or they will obsess over themselves, their external appearance. They will either do two things. Young women will dress immodestly to gain attention from men. They will expose body parts. They will dress in a provocative, sensual way to gain attention from men. Older women... Because they're not able to do that any longer. Men are not interested anymore. Instead, they will wear expensive jewelry. Extravagant, expensive hairdos. 
They'll buy expensive accessories, right? I did a little research. Prada bags, right? Versace shirts. Not too much research, but... <laughs> right? I don't know, Gucci purses, whatever. Right? They'll buy these things to draw attention, from not from men. Men don't care. Prada or Payless. Right? We don't care. <laughs> to draw attention from other women. And Paul says these two are mutually exclusive. To gain somewhat uh, clarity in this, let's, let's look at verse 9. I want to highlight three words to you guys. The first word is adorn in verse 9. The word adorn is cosmeo. We get the word cosmetic from it. It has to do with how a woman prepares herself. It means basically to arrange, to put in order, to make ready. Paul is saying a woman is to make herself ready. Paul is not commanding against external preparation. It is not a, com- it's not a command to be slobs and, and come to church without doing your hair and without makeup. That's not the command. Paul recognizes that women are beautiful. And it is not wrong for women to try to increase and exhibit their beauty. That is not wrong. There is no biblical warrant in these verses for women to neglect their appearance, to conceal their beauty, to become untidy or even tacky. There is no virtue in that. He is not saying that. He's he's saying they should be nicely dressed. The question is, how should they adorn themselves? How should they adorn themselves? In In Greek culture, much like today, they were obsessed with outward beauty and appearance. It was highly esteemed. They were preoccupied. They would worship beautiful people, much like our society, our culture. There were women in the church at that time whose life was frankly centered around their appearance, much like today. And Paul confronts two wrong attitudes in dress. First is the wrong attitude of dressing with the intent of alluring men. Therefore, they dress in clothing that was not modest. Their intention, and women, come on, their intention. Many women plead ignorance, plead complete ignorance of these truths, but no. The secret place of their heart, their, their clothing is meticulously selected and chosen with the intention of to allure and to attract men. He confronts that practice and he gives a clear principle on how women are to dress. They are to dress with modesty. That's the second word. Modesty. This is the principle, women. There are no specific rules. There are no measurements on the length of the skirt. There are no detailed list of acceptable clothing and unacceptable clothing. The principle is modesty. I looked at modesty in Webster's Dictionary, and Webster says, restrained by a sense of propriety. Restrained by a sense of propriety. What is appropriate for this, for this context? Also, restrained by a sense of humility, 
characterized by reserve, purity, chaste, free from excess, moderate. It is the idea, attitude of not wearing anything which is deliberately seductive. Anything that would overexpose the body. It is the idea of being moderate. Here is the average, you're moderate from that. Part of behaving in a godly way, behaving like a priest, is to set the example in clothing. I would say in our culture, tight clothing would be included in this category. Dressing in a way where you would show your form to gain attention from men. The third word in verse nine, is in verse 9 is self-control. Soundness of mind. Literally, um, being sober. Another uh, translation is sanity. The word signifies a control over bodily passions. What he's talking about, he explains it in the next statement. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. So Paul's talking about self-control in terms of extravagance. Extravagance. In Paul's day, the braids were dazzling in appearance. They sparkled with expensive jewelry. Sometimes represented fortunes. Paul is saying godly women are to avoid such luxuries. It is not a prohibition on braiding one's hair. It is not an absolute ban on hairstyles. It is not a ban on jewelry, wearing gold or wearing nice clothing. The prohibition is the extravagance, overdoing it, being lavish, spending hours and fortunes on these things to gain attention from other women. Literally, to call attention to yourself. To flaunt your, either your beauty or your wealth. Paul is saying these aren't fitting attire for a godly woman. Especially an older woman. She is not to adorn herself with such things. Instead, she is to adorn herself with verse 10, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Paul is reminding women that there are two kinds of feminine beauty. One is external. It is fading. It is temporary. The other is internal. Requires diligence. Requires true piety. And it is unfading. It is eternal. Paul is saying the formal, the external. God doesn't care about it. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God does not look at what man looks at. God looks at the outer appearance, but the man... Man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. What pleases God is the inner beauty of a woman who is modest, who is filled, adorned herself with good works. That's what I believe Paul is doing here. Paul is making a clear correlation between a woman's manner of dress and the, and the genuineness of her profession as a believer, as a worshiper of God. If a woman professes to be a Christian, but dresses seductively, dresses immodestly, dresses with extravagance, 
She's obsessed with her external appearance. Paul says her, her godliness, even her faith, is to be questioned. Because a godly woman's devotion and piety, her priest's likeness is clearly evidenced, is clearly seen by her dress. And how she dressed, she's dressed modestly, she's dressed with self-control, self-restraint, and she's ultimately dressed with good works. Good works. Her heart is set upon serving others. Being a doer of good works. All for the pleasure of God. That's the first, I believe, overarching foundational trait of a godly older woman. Go back to Titus with me and we'll look at the second God-pleasing characteristic. It is, they are not slanderers. They are not slanderers. Paul moves from behavior to speech. The word there for slanderer, it's the Greek word diabolos. From the where we get Satan. 34 times in the New Testament, this word is used to identify Satan. And Paul says a godly woman will not commit slander. Older women must not commit slander. Why? Because nothing is more Satan-like than slander. Satan is a malicious slanderer, slandering night and day. Paul is saying, don't be like Satan. Slander is a grievous evil. It is a heinous sin. No matter how popular, how entertaining, how accepted, in the sight of God, it is akin to the work of Satan. It seems that older women in this island of Crete had a lot of time on their hands. And because they had a lot of time, they gathered together. And they occupied themselves not with service, not with the Lord's work, not with serving the family. But they were occupied with gossip, criticism, fault finding, and slander. And Paul says that is the devil's work. Paul says they should be doing anything but slandering. What is slander? It is the utterance of false charges which defame and damage another's reputation. It is malicious. You know this is not true. At best, it is unfounded. It is rumor. But you're spreading it around to hurt others, to condemn others behind their backs. The third characteristic is not slaves to wine. Not slaves to wine. It is a strong term in the Greek. It means a drunkard. Apparently in this island of Crete, as elsewhere, older people turn to stimulants to refresh their weary bodies and minds. Perhaps in the pain of their old age, maybe even in the loneliness of their old age, they want to dull their senses a little bit. So they gave themselves over to drinking wine to a point where they were getting drunk. Paul says, older women must not be drunkards, must not be enslaved, bound, addicted to alcohol. And again, just like gossip, slander, contrary to popular thinking, being drunk on wine 
is a sin. It's a heinous sin. It is one of the deeds that is mentioned in Galatians 5.21. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. And he lists all these sinful things and one of them is drunkenness. 1 Corinthians 6.9, Paul does it again. Do not be deceived. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul paints this, this positive and negative picture of what an what older women should aspire to be. Reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, and not drunkards. And then he moves on to ministry. Paul moves from life to ministry, from character to leadership. And he highlights for us two unique ministries for older women in the church. And guys, listen to me. In the life of the church, it is doubly important that older women are godly. More is at stake with older women than older men. More is at stake. For older men, older, older men, younger men, younger women, the stake is the word of God may not be reviled, right? What is at stake is that they might not have nothing bad to say about us. They might be ashamed, verse 8. Verse 10 is that, that we might adorn a doctrine of God, that they might see God in our lives. But for older women, there is one more that's at stake. And that's younger women. Younger women, they have one more. The future of younger women are at stake with the older women of the church. Strategically in the church, older women, you guys are in the front lines of ministry. To reach the younger women, elders can't do it. Older men cannot do it. Only ones who can do it are the older women in the church. That is why Paul says, focus on the older women. They are key. They are the ones you need to focus on and start with. The church stands or falls with them. The older women are pace setters to younger women. They set the standard. They set the example in terms of doctrine, in ministry, in character, in faithfulness to the Lord. They are the ones that are setting the example for these younger women. And so you must start with them. Two ministries of older women. Verse 3, they are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is good. I think it's worthy to note that Titus here was not instructed by Paul to teach the younger women. That's not Titus' job. He can't do it. Paul commands Titus to teach older women who will in turn teach the younger women. Hendrickson says this, quote, One understands immediately that no one is better qualified to train a young woman than a mature, godly woman. No one is more qualified. This is so important. That is why as a church, we must have godly older women in the church so that they can teach the younger ones. Teach them how to love their husbands, love their children, 
to be diligent at home, to submit to their husbands, to live godly lives. There is no one else that can do this work. Older women are to teach what is good. In the Greek it is one word. They are teachers of the good. They are to encourage, instruct, exhort, proclaim, rebuke younger women on the things that are right according to the word of God. That is the primary role of older women. That is your job, to raise godly women. Godly older women are not to be placed on the sidelines of ministry. I think so many churches relegate older women to menial tasks. That's a tragedy. They don't understand the resource, the treasure that they have in older women. They're to be in the center of ministry, the front lines of teaching, counseling, rebuking, discipling, mentoring younger women in the Lord. That is one of my fears. Bob and I talk about this. If the older women presently do not disciple, train, teach, exhort younger women today, what will become of Cornerstone in the future? What will become of women in the future, in the life of the church. I challenge the older women of our church to do this. Understand the importance of your ministry, God-given ministry. To be teachers of that is good. I think a lot of women, a lot of people use age as an excuse. They always want to be around older saints. Why? Because they don't want to be the ones to set the example. They don't want the pressure of being in the older group because they know people are looking at them. They're going to set the bar, set the pace. And being self-centered, they're always looking for older people to fellowship with instead of accepting the responsibility that you are older than someone else and therefore you need to be a teacher. You need to personify, exemplify these traits and teach younger women to apply them in their lives. Go down to verse 4. Second ministry is they are to train the younger women. They are to train them. The Greek word, the root is sophra. It is to teach someone self-control. The best translation, I guess, is to train someone in self-control. Train younger women in self-restraint. So older women are to teach the truth, but also train them to apply this truth to the various areas of their lives. It is passing down life. It is the ministry of discipling. Ministry of sharing life. Getting down and dirty. Sharing your heart, sharing your life, being vulnerable, and taking scripture and confronting someone, pointing out a blind spot, and pouring out investing in younger women. That is a tremendous challenge. It is not easily done, but it must be done. This ongoing relationship of Teaching, mentoring, confrontation, and affirmation.
Again, it is doubly crucial for older women to be godly because not only is the Word of God at stake, the future of younger women is at stake. You know, let me just speak from my heart to the older women of our church and ask you guys and let you guys know and plead with you and tell you that we need your help. That leaders of Cornerstone We need your your help. You need to come alongside of us and labor with us in the ministry of discipling our young people. I I plead to the older women of our church to, to put aside pursuit of worldly things. To prioritize, to prioritize your family, but not to idolize your family. To care for your children but in a way that will be an example to our church. We're asking you to do something that's very difficult, near impossible. Why? Because we're a young church. We're asking you to love your husbands, to care for your young children, at the same time minister to our younger women. That is near impossible. I understand that. You know, most churches have older women where their children are grown and gone. You know, husbands have been discipled and trained, so now they can feed themselves, right? They can dress themselves now, right? And you're able to minister in the church. To be ministering like that in that stage of your life is difficult. We understand that. But as a young church, we don't have that luxury. In this context, you are the older women. You need to pull double duty. You do it both. The future of our younger women is at stake. I believe God will grant you grace. Because if you don't teach them right life, if you don't train them in godliness, who will? No one can. I can't. I can't involve myself with a younger woman. Bob can't. Pastor Ben can't. No man here can nor ought to involve themselves in a discipleship or a mentoring relationship with a younger woman. So our hands are tied. Therefore, they're left themselves. If older women will not get involved in the future of younger women at church is in a precarious state. We humbly ask the older women of our church and God commands you, that's your ministry, to teach and train Titus 2 describes your primary ministry responsibility in the church. In the context of the church, it is to teach and train younger women. It is our prayer. As we prayed last week, that God would raise up mature, godly, older men. It is our prayer. That God God would raise up priest-like women who are careful with their words. Who are Ephesians 4.29 women. Who are not given to addictions of this world who will devote themselves to God, to family, to personal holiness, and devote themselves to younger women so that they might have these qualities in their lives. Let's pray. God, speaking for the elders here at Cornerstone, Bob and I, 
Lord, we confess and you know our, our deep love for the women of our church. We consider them precious gifts from your hand to us. They are the backbone of our ministry. They are the foundation. They are the ones that toil and labor behind the scenes. They are the faithful ones who are on their knees throughout the night praying for the Lord's work, who are giving sacrificially, who are out there proclaiming the gospel. And Lord, yet, our hands are tied in terms of ministering to them. Our hands are tied in terms of covering for them and shepherding and and caring for their needs. Lord, we we pray that the Holy Spirit would tenderly tenderly and, and graciously convict hearts of older women in our church that it is not for us to sense our inadequacy and step back. It is time for us to depend on you the trust in the Word of God, knowing that our adequacy comes from you, God, from your Word, that you would just graciously shepherd these older women's hearts and to allow them to see the ministry opportunities that surround them and you would grant them vision and a heart to invest in the younger women of our church. Lord, you would open their eyes to see how much potential there are in the younger women of our church and what great needs there are in terms of teaching and training and shepherding. And you would enlarge the hearts of the younger women, older women of our church to give themselves, to invest their lives to other women. And Lord, as we learn from Titus, you would grant younger women to be humble, to be learners, to listen, that they would consider it a privilege, an honor upon honor to be shepherded by an older woman and they would humbly accept the, the, the word of God, the training, even the rebuke with open hearts so that our women, God, might be beautiful in your eyes, so that our women, our mothers, our wives would please you with their lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.